I hope that you'll turn with me in a Bible to the book of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 19, as we look together today at verses 9 to 23, 2 Samuel 19, verses 9 to 23. When we pick up our reading in this portion, we see that David's kingship in Israel, is firmly established. The rebellion has been put down. His son Absalom has been killed in battle. And all of his deceitful and conniving plans have been destroyed. And we saw last week how David was not rejoicing in that truth. He was grieved. He was cut to the heart by that, and how God used Joab to wake him up out of his grief and to remind him that he still has work to do. And it wasn't dramatic. All he did was sit. All he did was to be seen by his troops, and that was enough to remind them, God has a king on the throne of Israel. So what comes next? It wouldn't appear that there's anything in the way. Militarily, who's going to threaten David at this point? Politically, there's no rival. And yet, David remains in the wilderness. He doesn't assemble his troops to march back into Jerusalem like a conquering hero. Why not? It's because there's still... One critical factor that's missing. And it's the same factor that if missing today in your life and in your heart will keep you from encountering the living God in this service. If this one factor, this one difference maker is not present in your heart and in your life today, then this service is simply going to be something for you to endure. And if this factor is missing in your life, you're going to know less of God's joy. You're going to know less of God's blessing and God's favor in your life. Your life is going to be severely impoverished. What is it? What is the one factor? An invitation. That's it. An invitation. David does not go back to Jerusalem until he has been invited to come back to Jerusalem. Now, it's no stain on his kingship. He is king in Israel. No one can threaten him. But he does not go back to Jerusalem. The question is not, is he king or not? The question is, Where will his rule be seen? Will it take place in the wilderness? Or will it be in the seat of power in the capital city in Jerusalem? Likewise, today, David's greatest son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is Lord of all. He has proven that by conquering death itself. By ascending to the right hand of God the Father. His Lordship is really not in question. What is in question is whether or not his lordship 
whether or not his reign, whether or not his rule is going to be seen and felt and experienced in you and in me? Is he going to rule on the throne of your heart or not? He does so by invitation only. Neither David nor the Lord Jesus Christ forces his way into your heart. He comes by invitation only. And what form does that invitation take? One word. Surrender. Surrender. Are you surrendered to God's King today or not? Are you surrendered in this service to say, I want to be lost, God, in your will. Not what I want, but what you want. God, speak. Holy Spirit, speak. Holy Spirit, come and reign. By invitation only. And here's what you need to know about King Jesus specifically. Surrendering to King Jesus is not about trying to create for him room in your heart. But so many people, they've asked Jesus into their heart, they've invited him into their heart, but it's Jesus alongside this or that, or him or her. He's one among many loyalties. No, surrendering to Jesus, King Jesus, God's chosen and anointed King, is not about trying to create room for him in your heart. Rather, it's about crying out by the power of the Holy Spirit, the transforming heart, changing power of the Holy Spirit for Him to rule over your heart. Not just inviting Him in, but crying out for Him, pleading for Him to rule over your heart, to be Lord of all. There's all the difference in the world. And it will be seen in your spiritual life. I assure you. So have you surrendered? What does that look like? Let's see what it looks like as we read these verses. We start by reading verses 9 to 10. Throughout the tribes of Israel, all the people were arguing among themselves, saying, the king delivered us from the hand of our enemies. He is the one who rescued us from the hand of the Philistines. But now... He has fled the country to escape from Absalom. And Absalom, whom we anointed to rule over us, has died in battle. So why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? In the background to these verses, we need to know that there was an intense regional rivalry between the northern tribes of Israel and the southern tribes. In the north, we have ten tribes. In the south, we have Judah and Benjamin. David is from Judah. That is the royal tribe. But we start by looking at the northern tribes. And the northern tribes were very much a part of the civil war. They followed Absalom. They chose Absalom as king over David. And so the scene begins with their state of mind. 
And what are they doing? They're arguing among themselves. They're saying the king, that is David, he was the one who rescued us from the Philistines. He's the one who proved that he was powerful in battle. Look at all the benefits and the blessings that we received from him. But he's been banished because of Absalom. And now Absalom, the one we anointed, the one we thought was a much better king, a more appealing king, more effective ruler, well, he's dead. Now what? What we see is a stark choice for the desperate. A stark choice for the desperate. And the question that remains, why do you say nothing of bringing the king back? In view of how he has proven himself in the past, in view of the fact that Absalom and his kingdom has proven to be completely bankrupt, why do you say nothing of bringing the king back? Do you want to know what's wrong in the world today? It can be boiled down to this question. Why do you say nothing of bringing the king back? No one's asking this question. This is a world that has been seduced by Absaloms. By what shimmers. By what glimmers. By what is big and flashy and attractive. And it's the same problem that is as old as the human race. Hear these words from Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, who was with her, and he ate it, right? This is not a new problem. This is our problem. This is the diagnosis of the human race. We have chosen Absalom over David. And our default setting, your default setting, my default setting is to choose Absalom. Why? Because he looks good. Because he seems to offer us a quick fix for what is wrong in the world. But I pray that there will come a time in your life, if it hasn't happened already, when you grow desperately disillusioned with Absalom. And if it takes Absalom dying, so be it. Disillusioned with trying to satisfy the deepest longings of your heart in politics, as though politics could fix the world. And you invest your heart and your energy and your, your passion. You're far more passionate about politics than anything relating to God. Why do you say nothing of bringing the king back? There's only one king who has proven himself able and willing to save you from what truly threatens you. Namely, the sinfulness lurking in your own heart. Have you grown disillusioned by trying to satisfy the deepest longings of your heart in religion? Oh, you come to church 
Every time the doors are open, pandemic or not, you're here. You bring your Bible, you read your Bible, you pray along, you sing along, but there's no power. There's no power. You're so busy that you're not asking the question, let's bring the king back. Let's have him rule starting in my heart and in your heart. Are you disillusioned with trying to find satisfaction and love and hope in a relationship? Someone has let you down, and everyone will at some point, right? Everyone will at some point. Are you disillusioned with trying to find joy and happiness in a career, and it's let you down? Bring the king back. We know who the king is. The Lord Jesus Christ has proven himself to be Lord of all because he's done far more than rescue his people from the Philistines. The Lord Jesus, by his apparent defeat on the cross, has proven his triumph, and his triumph is over sin and death. This is what the king has done. This is what King Jesus has done for us. And Absalom, what did he do for us? He brought death and misery and hopelessness, and he's dead. Bring the king back. Is there any desperation in your heart? Or not? The ten northern tribes know we need David back. There is no one else who can fix this. There is no one else who can make the world right. There is no one else who can be our hope. But God's king. Bring him back. Are you even asking the question? Surrender to him. Cry out to him. Not just for him to come into your heart, but for him to rule over your heart. For him to be Lord over your life. Over everything. Well, we have a different problem when we turn to the south in Judah as we read verses 11 to 15. King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests. Ask the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his palace? Since what is being said throughout Israel has reached the king at his quarters. You are my relatives, my own flesh and blood, so why should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, are you not my own flesh and blood? May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you are not the commander of my army for life in place of Joab. He won over the hearts of the men of Judah so that they were all of one mind. They sent word to the king, return, you and all your men. Then the king returned and went as far as the Jordan. Now the men of Judah had come to Gilgal to go out and meet the king and bring him across the Jordan. What we see in these verses is an urgent warning to the complacent. An urgent warning to the complacent. These are the ones who are David's own flesh and blood. His own people. And David leverages what's happening in the north to appeal to his own people to say, look, this is what they're saying up north. They're saying, why don't we bring the king back? 
Why am I not hearing that from the people who should know better? From my own family, my own tribe? Should you be the last ones to bring me back? Should you be the last ones to wake up and get it? And to prove just how serious he is in this appeal, he says Amasa is to be general in place of Job. Who is Amasa? This is none other than Absalom's general. This is the very general who just a little while ago was leading troops against him. And now David says, you know what? As a token of my good favor, to show I mean this, let Amasa be my general in place of Joab. Wake up, complacent. Wake up, self-satisfied. And this is a word for those of us in the pews. This is a word for the ones standing in the pulpit. Why? Because so often, the longer you're a Christian, the more dull all this becomes. And sadly, the churches that are the oldest, the churches that have the most illustrious history, are the most spiritually weak and dead. How do you explain this? How do you explain this? It's because over time, when Jesus isn't ruling over our hearts, when we're not inviting him, when we're not crying out to him to rule over our hearts, to rule over our church, so often we get confused about what really matters. And we start thinking that other things should take priority over the king. And for us, how the king speaks to us through his word. And we don't really care whether or not the preacher gives a clear exposition from God's word. We care about, was the service entertaining? Was the music excellent or not? Is the building conducive to worship? Is it beautiful? Are there stained glass windows? I really prefer stained glass windows. What was the temperature in the room? Were the pews cushioned? Do I like the people there or not? All these other things crowd out King Jesus from his rightful place on the throne of your heart. There's another word for this, and we find it in some of the harshest words of King Jesus in the New Testament. He calls it lukewarmness, but it's complacency, feeling self-satisfied. And we find it in the book of Revelation, the third chapter, in his letter to the church in Laodicea. And remember, these are words to the church. This isn't an evangelistic Word. This isn't for the unbeliever. This is to the church. This is the Lord Jesus speaking. Maybe he needs to say this to Tabernacle Baptist Church. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth. I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. 
I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Is that a good word for you? Do you need to hear that? Do you welcome that rebuke? I pray that you would. I pray that you wouldn't be annoyed by it because hear these good words. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. The church in Laodicea is self-satisfied. They don't need anything. They prize themselves on their moderation, their dignity, their respectability. And this is what happens with churches over time. We pride ourselves that we're not like those enthusiasts. We're not like people who get lost in the Spirit. I mean, we're controlled decently and in order is the word of the day. And we're, and we're so leery of anything that is beyond our control. And so many people say moderation and everything, and we apply that to our religion. We don't want to be too passionate. We don't want to be too sold out for Jesus. Heaven forbid something in the order of service gets out of order. Woo! We couldn't have that. Heaven forbid the preacher doesn't wear a tie. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Oh, we, we pride ourselves in our respectability. We are dignified. Everything in moderation. And I wonder, do you know what it means? Have you ever known this, as Charles Wesley puts it, to be lost in wonder, love, and praise? Have you known those depths of love? Have you known those heights of joy? Have you ever been lost in God? Or no. No, 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 no. God fits in this formula. God fits in this equation. May He stir you. May He wake you up and wake me up out of our lukewarmness. A cold drink is good. A hot drink is good. Lukewarm, blah, is what Jesus said. That's useful for nothing. There's no passion. There's no love for me. But does he write them off? No. Church, hey church, I'm knocking. I'm at the door. You don't have to look far. I'm knocking. Do you hear me? And he's not out there like some beggar. He's out there as the Lord of the universe, the risen and ascended Lord of all. But we don't have the power, the willpower in and of ourselves to just say, oh, all right, I'm going to open the door. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, the transforming, renewing, regenerating, born again power of the Holy Spirit, we can open it. That power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and that was poured out on His church, the person of the Holy Spirit. 
He's available to you here and now. And may you, by His power, at the impulse of His love, open the door. Open the door. Don't just invite Him in and say, all right, Jesus, there's a place at the table for you over here. No, Jesus, this is your house. My life is yours. My heart is yours. Reign over it, please. I've made a mess of it. I'm tired of being deceived by Absalom's. I want you, Jesus, to be king. It's an urgent warning to the complacent. And if that's you, may the Holy Spirit wake you up today. But suppose you wonder, can I trust this king? What kind of welcome will I receive from him? Be encouraged by these words as we pick up our reading of verse 16. Shemi, son of Gera, the Benjamite from Baharim, hurried down with the men of Judah to meet King David. With him were a thousand Benjamites, along with Ziba, the steward of Saul's household, and his 15 sons and 20 servants. They rushed to the Jordan, where the king was. They crossed the ford to take the king's household over and to do whatever he wished. When Shemi, son of Gera, crossed the Jordan, he fell prostrate before the king and said to him, May my Lord not hold me guilty. Do not remember how your servant did wrong on the day my Lord the king left Jerusalem. May the king put it out of his mind. For I, your servant, know that I have sinned. But today I have come here as the first from the tribes of Joseph to come down and meet my Lord the king. Then Abishai, son of Zeruiah, said, Shouldn't Shemi be put to death for this? He cursed the Lord's anointed. David replied, What does this have to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? What right do you have to interfere? Should anyone be put to death in Israel today? Don't I know that, I, that today I am king over Israel? So the king said to Shemi, You shall not die. And the king promised him on oath. What we see here is a merciful embrace of the repentant. A merciful embrace of the repentant. That This is one of the most beautiful and striking examples of repentance in all of Scripture. And many of us have never even read it. Who's Shemi? Well, you go back to chapter 16. And you read that as David is leaving Jerusalem, having been forced out by his usurping son Absalom, with his tail between his legs, with the fragile remnants of his army, Shemi adds insult to injury to say, you dog, you're getting exactly what you deserved. And why is he so opposed to David? Well, he's from Benjamin. And who else was from Benjamin? King Saul, the king before David, David's rival. And so Shemi is committed to the cause of Saul. He thinks David is a usurper. He's throwing rocks at him. He's hurling dirt at him. Ha! You're getting exactly what you had coming. We win. The house of Saul is better. I told you. And the same individual, Abishai, says, are we going to take that? Just give me, a, give me one, one nod, David, and I will silence him forever. And David says, who knows? Maybe he's speaking for God. I'm not going to rule that out. Maybe I did have this coming to some extent. And now, what is Shemi doing? 
He is rushing to meet the king. He falls down before him. And you might say, well, of course he's doing that now that David's in power again. He doesn't have to do this. He could run and hide. No, he goes forthrightly, earnestly to plead his cause before God's king to say, I have sinned. And I want to be the first to welcome you back. Abishai says, oh no, this can't be authentic. No, he needs to die. There needs to be punishment for what he did. And what is that merciful embrace of King David? No. I know I'm king. No one's going to die today. Certainly not one like Shimei. So I need to tell you, if God's king, if David can welcome Shimei after what he did, I promise you, King Jesus will not turn you away. Hear these beautiful, beautiful words from the Lord Jesus in John 6, verse 37. All those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Whoever meets me at the Jordan, whoever runs out to welcome me, whoever says, yes, Jesus, I need you, I will never, ever turn away. Is that you? Come to him. He is gracious. He is merciful. He is full of compassion for you, whoever you are, whatever you've done, whatever you haven't done. Come to Him. Don't delay. He will never turn away those who come to Him. But never forget what He says in verse 44. No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws them. Don't take credit for it. Don't say, well, I'm, I'm here. I have a seat at the table because I chose it and she didn't. I believed and he didn't. No, when you step back and you look at God's work in your life, you realize it was the Holy Spirit all along. <laughs> I would never have found Him. I would never have awakened to this truth. This is the Holy Spirit all along. This has been God pursuing me and moving me and guiding me and convicting me and challenging me and encouraging me all along. It was Him through and through. May that be your testimony. So whether you find yourself in desperate straits with a stark choice between David or Absalom, or whether you need to hear an urgent warning today to wake up out of your slumber and your complacency and your lukewarmness, or whether you've been a rebel and you know it, and you need to come meet David, and, and you need to come meet God's king, his greatest son, at the Jordan. Come on. Don't delay. Because if you don't hear me say anything else, hear this. This is a unique moment in history. Now is the window of God's mercy. Now we hear King Jesus saying, repent and believe. Turn Acknowledge your rebellious spirit, your rebellious heart, 
Invite me to come rule. I don't force my win. Invite me. Surrender to me so that I can rule over your heart. Repent and believe for the kingdom of God has come near. His reign is imminent. But this time in history will not go on forever. There will come a day when the same Jesus who poured out the Holy Spirit on Pentecost will come back. And when He comes back, we're told every knee shall bow. Every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. Willingly or unwillingly. And on that day, there will be so many who said, oh, we were so blind. How did we not see Him when He was right in front of us? How could we possibly have chosen Absalom over David? How could we have possibly chosen sin over King Jesus? And yet it will happen. And King Jesus will say to many, tragically, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. May that not be you. The moment is now. We don't know when He will come back, but we know He will come back, and we know He will finish what He began, and we know that He is the judge of all, of you and of me. Don't put it off. Trust Him. Now. Invite Him. Surrender to Him. Say, Jesus, I am Yours. Please, Holy Spirit, change me from the inside out. Convict me of the ways I'm still drawn to an Absalom. God, save me, a sinner. Maybe you know Jesus is King. You have the Holy Spirit, but you need to hear that knocking. Let him in. He will come to you. You will enjoy personal, intimate fellowship with him. You with him and he with you. And you will walk with him forever. And you will enjoy his presence forever as you were created to do. Is this the day of salvation for you? Is this the day of reawakening? Of revival? The same power that was at Pentecost is in this room right now. But is it in your heart? That's the question. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord, we praise you and we thank you for making yourself known to us as a merciful and compassionate God. We thank you for proving your love to us by sending your only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, to pay the penalty, to pay the debt, the insurmountable obstacle standing between us as sinners and you as a holy God. Lord, we confess that we can't save ourselves. We could spend our whole lives searching for you and never find you if it weren't for the Holy Spirit working in us and through us and drawing us closer to receive what Jesus has done for us. I pray for every single heart in this room. I pray for every single life in this room.
Lord, may we be convicted. May you rebuke and discipline those whom you love. May you use this challenge to draw us closer to you so that we might enjoy your presence forever and ever. All by your grace, all for your glory, all in the power of the Holy Spirit. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.